Have you ever wondered what it's like for other people to go through a life event? Is it the same for them? Is it different? And how? My name is Dr. Nikkel Rogers-Webb. I'm a psychologist. I'm doing a podcast with my mom, Dr. Elsa Rogers, Dean of General Studies. And we're going to be talking to different people about what it's like to go through a single life event at the same time. In this episode, we go straight to New York City to learn from social worker, Ms. Denise Rogers, about what life has been like in New York since the pandemic, and to learn more about the foster care system in New York City. Ms. Rogers works as a social worker, helping youth in the foster care system. So we learn a little bit more about what kinds of supports are offered to the young people in that system, as well as the challenges that they had to overcome when everything changed due to the pandemic. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, we have another illustrious guest. Uh, her name is Denise Rogers. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we are related. <laughs> <laughs> As we are related to many of our guests, but we're very lucky to have a lot of family members who do varied things and are um, really good in each of their professional areas. So Denise is a social worker in um, the New York, New Jersey area, and her focus is on improving the life skills of youth while guiding them through their foster care placement. At, particularly as they transition into adulthood. But Denise, um, I, I'm sure you can help our listeners understand that even better than, you know, I could. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about what you do. Okay. So um, well, thank you for the invitation. And uh, this is a new experience for me, but I'm excited to share a little bit of my professional world with the listeners and hopefully maybe um, other people come into the field and um, we can change lives. So um, I work with youth in foster care in New York City. So just to give people a a fuller idea if they're not familiar. So we have the state of New York and um, I work within New York City, which is considered downstate of of New York. And that comprises of the five boroughs, um, which is Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx. Um, the youth that I primarily work with are 14 years and older within the state of New York. Our young adults are able to remain in the foster care child welfare system until the age of 21 with their consent. Um, there are times when some of our young adults remain beyond the age of 21 for various reasons, but, um, primarily it, uh, terminates at the age of 21. And we do have some people that reside in Long Island. It's part of New York City, but <laughs> technically consider it, it's complicated. But um, some of our young adults do live in Long Island, and we do service them as well. So um, our youth do reside in licensed foster homes. So our, our young people are not in a congregate setting. They're not in group homes um, or residential um, centers for that address behavioral challenges. They reside in foster homes with licensed foster parents, and those foster parents may be single adults or married, um, same sex, or um, divorced, elderly. We um, accept anyone who is open to loving our youth. And we work with them on life skills. So we're talking about what are the things that our youth would need to learn um, had they been at home 
and they were getting it from their parents. But because they're in a different type of setting, we still want to ensure that they acquire these skills. So we're talking about things that you don't necessarily think about, but it's everyday things. We're talking about, do they know how to prepare meals? Do they know how to do grocery shopping, how to create a, a healthy meal plan? Do they know how to seek employment, uh, do the resume, um, conduct an interview, all of these different uh day-to-day things that come second nature to us. These are the um, types of things that we try to impart to them while in our, while they are in our care. We have um, traditionally provided this information in a classroom-like setup. So they'll come in and we'll do group work with them um, once a week. We have realized over the course of time that that is not the most natural setting, of course. Um, and it was just more checking the boxes. Okay, we have to provide this service to our young adults and this is how we do it. So check, we met that need, but it's not practical. Um, Our young people learn by day-to-day application. So we are shifting more to encouraging the foster parents to be more hands-on in the learning process, having our case planners who are in the homes each month with these families and having them also encourage the learning process within the home as well as within the community and still provide the group work aspect um, for those who just want to have a different outlet. So the group is starting to shift into more of maybe peer support rather than just uh, educational. Um, and yeah, so that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> wow. I had no idea that the foster system, you know, did the kind of um, education type mm-hmm. groups mm-hmm. where, you know, because I guess, and I, I knew very little about the, the foster system. I, I thought when children have need of a foster family because they, you know, their family can't care for them or it's a dangerous or abusive situation, that mm-hmm. they just go with another family and, and, you know, try to figure it out. I didn't know that you guys also provided some wraparound support there. Yes. I mean, there, there are a lot of um, different services that have started to come into play within the New York City region. So you have the case planner who goes into the home each month and works with the youth as well as the foster parent and the biological family because, I mean, foster care is temporary. That's the way that we look at it. This isn't your permanent placement. So we're working with you to achieve some goal. Either we're working for a reunification, we're working towards adoption, we're working towards transitioning out of foster care, we're working towards maybe um, you might need a residential setting because your challenges are so heightened, you might need a different type of setting. So that is one of the goals that that we work with them on. But the... um, In addition to that, the case planners have so much on their plates. There are a lot of other supports that have started to come into play. So there's a program called Wendy's Wonderful Kids, where they also just hone in on permanent resources for the young adults. So whether that's an adoptive resource or just someone that the youth um, can connect with, then that's their focus. Within, this is May, I would say within the past six months, the agency has come on board with 25 other child welfare agencies within the city to provide coaches to our youth who are 14 and older. And their focus is basically, let me work with you. Let me find out what's going on with you and let me be as much support to you as I possibly can in whatever way that is. So um, this model lends a lot more to um 
my social work training of the aspect when they say meet the client where they're at, this is what this model is is truly trying to exemplify by um, we engage initially and it's okay, well, what's going on? And it's not, the, the pressure is not there. It's, it's let's have a dialogue, let's see what's going on. And from that, then we start to talk about, well, what plans do you have for yourself? And we start to create those goals and those steps to achieve those goals along the way. And this person stays with them um, at least until the age of 26, if we get all of the funding that, that um, the city is, is, is hoping to get. So I think that in um, its fullest form, will go longer in um, preparing our youth for a life beyond foster care. Because that is as it stands right now, um, the they can remain into foster care until the age of 18. And once they turn 18, um, they have to provide legal consent every six months. And mm. then um, when they turn 21, it's like, okay, if they've achieved some form of permanency, which could mean they secured housing or they return to their families, whatever may have transpired, but it's viewed as permanency, then the case kind of, okay, it's closed. And as we all know, how many of us are really prepared at the age of 21 to live on our own? And we're asking our 21-year-olds to secure housing, maintain a stable job, have healthy relationships, um, minimize conflict, like all of these things that are productive young adults are supposed to have, but their experiences have impacted them so much that they they can't navigate all of that. And we're expecting them to figure it out by 21. Okay, good luck, go forth. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a real uphill battle. And some of our young adults are also parenting, whether they're in their custody mm-hmm. or the um, the other parents, some of our young adults are also parenting while in foster care. So there's a lot of challenges for our youth that we're asking them to deal with at the age of 21 that the average person doesn't have because they have the supports, whether it's auntie, grandma, next door neighbor, they have someone they can go to um, for several mm-hmm. years to come. But tell so, me something, you, you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, we, we expect these young people after being in foster care to be independent uh, citizens, but mm-hmm. is there, do they have any recourse at all? Like you said, most of us have our grandma or aunts or uncles, even our parents to fall back on. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone in your system who can, um, on, on whom these people can fall back on? Um, the, the honest answer I would say is they, they fall back and that's it. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of the times um, they fall, but they fall and they are able to go to someone. I, in, in my experience, and I've been in this field for over 15 years, so I've seen that, um, like with any relationship, the dynamics of a relationship changes. So you may have been placed into foster care, let's say, at the age of 10. Um, and then you may have left at the age of 18 because you're like, I'm ready. I don't need foster care. I'm over this, this experience. And you may have left on your own or you may have secured housing at the age of 19 or 20. And so you're somewhat okay. And something happens at the age of 22. A lot of our young adults do still have relationships with their parents to whatever degree that it is. They have relationships with their prior caseworkers or their prior foster parents. So they do go to them at different times for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's it's not what it traditionally looks like. And in the past, the mindset was you're in foster care, your relationships with your family, something happened there. So that's not a healthy situation. And so we kind of have to rescue you from all of that and place you here. So your relationship should end over there. And we're like, that's not healthy. That's not how life works. We still have to help them to navigate through those emotions. And, and, and they begin to learn as they get older, if we still work with them, that you can work through some of these, or you begin to understand how this impacts me, how this triggers me, and then what I'm able to handle and what I'm not. Um, for, for, for example, there is a young lady and she's been in a foster home placement for, I want to say maybe about two or three years. There was something going on within that placement that it was no longer working. And in her mind, the best, the next best place for her until they found a, pla- a foster home placement was for her to be with her mother. Despite all of the parameters around how she came into foster care, that's where she chose to go. So they still have these relationships with their with their family members, even though they may not be there consistently. But they do have these relationships with with um, support services, and also with this new program model that we're we're starting to implement. Then that also would provide some wraparound um, support upon their discharge. So th- there's been some, um, I guess, more structured type of support. But the short answer is the expectation is you leave foster care and you're supposed to be okay. Mm. Um, whatever services we would have done while you were in our care should be enough to get you started along your way. Um, I want to say maybe in 2008, um, the commissioner for the child welfare system in New York City um, wanted to include the, the, the idea of connection for our young adults. So prior to that, it was you're in foster care, um, we provide services, you're discharged from foster care to independent living. And they, they started to see that you, you don't exist on your own. So we need to have uh, a mindset of connecting you with a, a permanent resource, whether that be a godparent, a teacher, or whomever, some other responsible adult that you can go to for different reasons at different points in, 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 in your life. Um, so that became a part of um, the, the transition planning, uh, which is now evolving into something else with all of these other models coming into place. So the city is um, beginning to shift a lot more in terms of trying to foster those relationships at an earlier time rather than waiting till that young adult is over the age of 17. Okay. Good. So Denise, what I was wondering is, did you, um, or at what place in the um, system does your role pick up? Because I'm hearing that, you know, children can enter the foster system at any point. Um, at the same time, I felt like I heard you talk a lot about the transition. So I guess in my head, I'm wondering, do you work more with the older um, kind of young, young adults or adolescents as they're trying to figure out how do I be a grown up on my own? Or are you just kind of with a group of individuals as they, you know, age, as they grow up? Um, but, but my current role, I just work with 14 and older. 
Um, Prior to that, I was a case planner where I worked with just youth in foster care who um, had children of their own. So I worked with the parenting youth, or we would refer to it as the mother-baby program. Um, And then prior to that, I worked with youth, well, not youth, but prior to that, it was working with any child and their goal was adoption. So that was a different um, dynamics. I mean, like I said, I've been involved in the system for several years. So I've, I've worked in different age groups with different uh, long-term plans. Um, but uh, maybe since, I want to say, 2008 or nine, it's been 14 and over and preparing them for a life beyond foster care. Um, not all of those People who are 14 and over, that will be their long-term plan, but that's the time period that we start working with them and thinking about in the event that you are not adopted or you're not going back home to your primary caretaker um, or you're not into being placed into a different type of living situation, you know, let's start talking about what that would look like if you had to leave foster care and live in your own home. So we start at the age of 14. I have a twofold question. Sure. Um, you described the number of uh, the number of areas in which you've worked. You know, different of age groups and all of that. Uh-huh. Um, which one was the most challenging for you, and what was which one was the most rewarding? Ooh, the most challenging. <laughs> they all come with their own challenges. <laughs> um, and and I, it sounds weird that they're both been equally rewarding because in thinking about it um okay so when i when i initially started in in this field um like i said i worked with families who their plan their goal was adoption so the kids that i worked with their parents rights were terminated or we were in the process of terminating their rights and it's just are you an adoptive home and let's get all of what needs to happen happen um and in those situations the relationship were a lot different because you didn't have the tension of the back and forth with the biological families you're just working with the adoptive resource so you got to see the fullness of bringing a family together um and what that love and support looked like so that was rewarding in that realm um there was a time when the program shifted from being it's being so compartmentalized and they wanted to have caseworkers work from the beginning of the case until it's it's ending so rather than okay a a child comes in we work with and then if the parents aren't planning then we kind of move you over here they're like regardless of what the goal is so whether you go home whether you get adopted or whatever you have it the entire time um that was a shift for me so then you begin to have a different relationship with the birth families. But even within that, you saw successes there because you, you're working with families who whatever trauma they've experienced throughout their life that is now playing out as they begin to parent. And you're like, you can get through this. So there were challenges with how do I get from being beyond my experiences to becoming a better parent so that my children can come home, but you still got the payout at the end. So the, the, the bumps with the parents in those situations, they weren't as much as what the reward was when everyone was able to go back home. Um, 
with the older youth. Um, the, the, the usual age-appropriate activities happens, the, the cursing out over the phone because they're, you're not giving them what they want or, or the responses that they're, you're giving to them is not exactly what they want to hear. But then you get the phone calls or the emails later on. I, I hear what you're saying. I see what you meant by such and such. So those little moments where you feel like it's all for naught, you know it's not all for naught because they're getting it. It's just coming in a lot later. So I don't really hold on too much to the negatives <laughs> um, because it's it's part of the process. I mean, they're, they're going through their own trauma. So you have to look at it through those lenses. If not, then you you know you will take home a whole lot more than you should. Well, it sounds like an incredibly difficult job. And so <laughs> I'm kind of wondering what made you decide to go into this field of work? <laughs> I, I'm so concise today. So I didn't choose the profession. The profession chose me. Um, I say that because my initial plan when I started college was to go to law school. Oh. And... Um, in that journey, I, I, it could have been the age at the time when I was in college and just not being confident at that age. But in, in one of my law classes, I'm like, this is, this is a lot right here. Like, this is, it, it, the workload was really a lot at that time. I was, what, 16, 17? I'm like, hmm, I don't know about this. <laughs> and in that particular program, um, I had an internship and my internship was with an alternatives to incarceration program. So um, but my work colleague at the time, I kind of started shadowing him um, and we would go to court and advocate for our clients to get reduced sentencing for going into drug treatment or counseling, all of these other um, types of services. And we would advocate for our clients to get a shorter jail sentence if they complied with these other um, services. And from that, I saw, well, I can still be of service to a, to a client and still have the court aspect of it. So this kind of is like the best of both worlds. And <laughs> That's how I got into the field of social work. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. Now, with um, just switching gears a little, with the um, pandemic right now kind of ravaging our country, mm-hmm. have you seen any yes. have any issues begin to stand out in your area of work? Um, in my area of work, um, as well as with, I mean, when, when we look at the population that we serve, we view them through the eyes of disadvantaged youth. Um, and, and so they, any, any story you may have heard about services for disadvantaged youth, whether they're living at home or in impoverished communities, that mirrors within the child welfare system. Mm-hmm. Um, the one, I guess, up that they may have as being within the child welfare system is there are a lot of more eyes on them. So a lot more people can advocate on their behalf to get resources. So with New York City deciding to close their schools, for example, we're talking about, OK, 
closing public schools. New York City has the largest school district in the country. Mm. We service 1.1 million students. And we're talking about students that are, you know, you're at home with your families. They may be students in shelters. Um, You have students in transitional housing, like all of these different types of setups, as well as the youth that are in foster home placements. Not all of our foster parents um, are tech savvy, have the financial resources to ensure that each child in the home has a computer or a tablet or some type of device where they can access um, their online learning. So that in and of itself was a challenge. They're like, okay, schools are closed. Online learning starts. They need devices. And you're like, OMG. Huh, right? So that first, I want to say, we still got a little bit of it now. I got an email about it today. I mean, that, that first month to two months was um, a real struggle in just, so the city, what the city did was they came up with a online portal where we can request request devices for the students. Um, but you had to have certain information and input it in the system. So it became a little bit challenging. I mean, we were able to do it. We, um, my colleague and I, we ensured that the youth that needed them, um, we made the request and then the devices were ultimately mailed out, but that took a long time. So schools closed in mid or late March. Um, so probably they were getting devices up until the beginning of this month because it's so many students that they had to provide devices to. They tried to prioritize the way that they distributed the devices. Um, but of course they didn't have sufficient devices on hand. Not all of our schools provide devices within their schools. So some, the schools that did, they said, okay, come get the devices that you are already using in the schools. And a lot of our schools don't have those resources to provide to the students. So then they were caught, okay, well, what do we do in the meantime? So it's what happens in the meantime, here's paper packets. So it's printing that stuff, providing it to them. So they have some paper version until they receive an electronic device so that they can be a part of the online learning. And even with that, then that comes with its own troubleshooting challenges if the foster parent is not familiar or comfortable with using technology and getting them, them to have that support to na- help the student navigate through through that process. So it's it's been an uphill battle, but uh, I think we're slowly getting there. Um, outside of the children that are in the foster home settings, like I said, I work with the 14 and older and some of that, that age population, they are... Um, either at home with their families on tr- on a trial basis, so which means that, you know, the family did what they needed to do and the child is back with their mom or dad or, or primary caretaker and we're, you know, trying to make sure that everything is progressing in the right way. So that's a different way that we're trying to provide the support, but they too may not have had the resources to, to um, give them the computer or what have you. So do you have internet in the home? Do you have a cell phone? What can you use in the meantime? Or maybe we need to get them a cell phone until they get the device. So finding out what items they have so that we can get them what they need until they get something for the longer term. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, then we have our older youth who may be in their own apartments Um, Some of our kids are on college campuses in other states or upstate New York um, and figuring out what the plan is for them 
Um, some schools, they're allowing them to stay on campus. Some of the kids prefer to stay on campus. They don't want to come back to the city. So it's it's different things going on at different times. So that's been one of the, um, the one of the bigger challenges um, that we've had to deal with due to the pandemic. And so many moving parts because you already yep. are, are working with people who have had challenging life circumstances mm-hmm. and all of a sudden we are in a situation where there really is a, a huge disparity between those individuals who are able to get access mm-hmm. um, to continue working, whether that is at school or at their jobs, and those who, could, even if they had the option, wouldn't be able to to do it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it sounds like you know you are on the, on the front lines of seeing that. Oh yes. Wow. So I have another question for you, and it's shifting gears a little bit away from your work as a social worker, but what has it been like to live in New York these last two months? <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's been interesting. When, when um, the stay, stay home orders first came in, it, it was kind of like a shock, like, really? New York? Like New York City, the city that never yeah. is like shutting down. No way. This is whatever. You know, you don't really buy into it, and then you think about, well, I'm in this field. Like, how does that even work? You know, we still have to ensure safety within homes, or if they're on trial mm-hmm. basis, like, how does that work? So, you know, you're like, okay, well, let's feel it out the first couple of days, the first couple of weeks, you know, a wait and see type of mindset. So, okay, I took some things home. I came home and, all right, we'll do this for a little while. And I'm like, okay, this is still going on. And it, it was really odd to see because even within that, um, with the schools closing and then, you know, the stores closing and things like that, you started to see less traffic on the road because, I mean, for me, for example, I don't drive all the way to work. Like I commute probably about close to two hours a day. Um, and so I would drop my, my, my daughter off to school and then I would drive to the train station and then take the train to work. And, you know, you're used to a certain flow of traffic. So when school's not in session, you're like, oh my goodness, this is a breeze. So you get from point A to point B in like five minutes because then you don't have the school buses and you don't have parents dropping their kids off. So you're like, all right. And so you saw that within the first, you know, month or two. And you're like, wow, this is really different. And um, when the numbers of transmission started to get higher, I'm like, hmm. I don't think I feel comfortable with taking the train because then I'm thinking I don't want to expose myself and then put my child at risk, put my husband at risk and um, coming home. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to drive to work. And the area of Brooklyn that I work, I'm like to get there. I don't drive to work normally. I think I've driven over there once prior to the pandemic. Um, That driving commute can probably take maybe about an hour, hour and a half. Um, but with the pandemic and everything being closed, I'm like, I can be in and out of Brooklyn in under an hour. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. So at first it was kind of like, you know, a little bit stress-free. I drive in, I park the car, I go in the office. The office is completely quiet because you're like, where is everybody? So one aspect it was I can get in without the 
ag- the added pressure of um, traffic and then the distractions from colleagues asking for different things at different times throughout the workday because you're in the office and they may be, I mean, within my, my company, I want to say on that floor, maybe we have over 100 staff members on that floor. And um, initially when I would go into the office, you would probably see maybe five people for the most throughout the day. And like, that's because you went looking for them because everyone's in their little office or cubby off somewhere. Um, But I want to say within the past month, like the traffic is getting back up there um, because people are coming, they're a little bit more comfortable with knowing how to navigate or because it's getting a little bit warmer at times. So they're coming out a lot more. So um, that is becoming more of a concern for me as more people venture out. Um, I try not to take my child to the store if I have to go grocery shopping. I'm like, okay, you stay home with dad and I go out or vice versa um, mm-hmm. just to minimize risk as much as possible. Um, but it, it's it, the good thing um, that I've noticed is that the school, fortunately for me, her daycare is still open because a lot, many of the daycare providers did close when they um, issued those stay at home orders. So there's another area that we're talking about how do disadvantaged families deal with the pandemic oh, yeah. and they don't have childcare. So yeah. for those that are able to go to work, I can't necessarily go to work because my daycare is closed. Um, and then seeing that on top of the the part of essential workers needing to go to work um meaning they consider us essential but the more essential so we're talking about the healthcare um professionals so the the city did um start to create centers where um the medical professionals can bring their children in so that if they need, you know, for them to go to work, that there would be staff available for them, because then, of course, that creates a, a challenge to do what you need to do, but you don't have a safe place to take your child. So they they've slowly start to um, provide a lot of supportive services to to families, um, but it's 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 becoming a little bit more challenging. You can see food banks are providing a lot more food than they ever have before. Um, the lines for those um, food donations are extremely long on top of the fact that the people on the lines are trying to social distance. Oh. So b- where before you would see just a, you know, a line like just the length of a, a city block. Now you're seeing that for two blocks, three blocks, mm. floor blocks, crossing the street because people are trying to social distance while waiting to receive some type of food donation. Uh, and at the point that they get up to the front, they may have stuff left over or they may not. Mm-hmm. Um, they've tried to um, put halts on, you know, eviction notices because we do have some of our young adults that live in public housing. So there was that concern, like, what are we going to do with our young people who are living in housing? And, you know, they're not able to work, so they're not able to pay their portion of the rent and worrying about Am I going to be able to stay here or not? So fortunately, the city did put, um, not, not a freeze, because, I mean, rent is still being charged, but the landlords cannot, you know, initiate eviction proceedings on them um, for a lack of payment at this time. So, I mean, there are some supportive services. Um, I know you asked about me, but I'm correlating as well to, to, to the 
population that I serve because it's real life day-to-day stuff that um, for many, they don't have the luxury of even thinking about, do I have any money saved up? Can I use that money to go grocery shopping? Or I didn't get all of my food stamp SNAP benefits. Where do I need to go? Do I feel safe with going there? Do I have any mask or gloves to go there? You know, so it's, it's, it's been really kind of scary to see what, what New York city looks like. I mean, I don't usually venture out much. I'm primarily home. I previously, when it first started, I would go into the office maybe once or twice a week. Um, as time has progressed, I, I started deferring that and working more from home and then maybe go into the office once a week or once every other week. Um, and whatever I need to do in the office, I just defer to that day and just get everything done in a lump sum. And um, sometimes I keep my daughter home and sometimes I take her to school because I can get a lot more done, of course, with the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's no joke. <laughs> it brings me to another question, um, Denise. Um, mm-hmm. As a social worker, now that um, we are social distancing and self-isolating and all of that, how do you... How do these um, young people get the one-on-one that I seemed I got the impression that you and your colleagues gave to them? So, um, <laughs> with the timing of this new program that I mentioned that that we're bringing on board, um, we hired two new staff members. So one started this month, the other one started last month, and their sole purpose is to connect with these young people. Mm -hmm. And as part of that program, we got additional resources to um, provide them with technology. So they have state-of-the-art computers, state-of-the-art cell phones, so they can call, text, FaceTime, whatever they need to with them. And that's what they've been doing um, since this pandemic. Okay, I'm calling you, I'm texting you, whatever Mm -hmm. that youth is okay with doing that they're doing it during this time um with these coaches um for lack of a better term um to try to stay connected with them um this program they piloted it with um some of the other foster care agencies before bringing it um across the city as a whole so some of the other agencies are further than we are in 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 rolling out the program so they have long-term relationships with some of their youth already and um they they call it any random time they we we encourage them to do videos like okay you want to do a video about what it's like going through this process. So they're still in their element of using technology, but Mm -hmm. they're using it as an outlet to deal with, you know, their day-to-day reality and and just talking about, okay, well, what are you doing today? You may not be able to go to the park. How else you might be able to um, get a little exercise or just get some fresh air because you've been in the house for for such Mm -hmm. a long period of time. So just even starting from there. That feels like a cross between a mentor and a life coach. Um, I, I guess you can say that. Yeah. Because, I mean, these are some really good skills because I'm hearing mm-hmm. like self-care as well as how on earth does somebody even do this stuff? Because even you know, as a psychologist, I um, worked for a long time with college students and even the mm-hmm. ones who did not have um, difficult situ- home situations that necessitated um entering the foster care system, Mm -hmm. even those students would come in and not know how to um, even approach certain 
um, life tasks. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I, I, it's really this program that you all are, are starting sounds really promising. Yes, it's, we're we're very excited. Like this week, like literally all week, we've did online training, and it's maybe about three other thirty other professionals were on this these three day uh, Zoom calls. I'm like, wow, and they had to be all video. So I'm like, this is different. I didn't even know they can do breakout rooms within Zoom. So we would be meeting, and then they're like, okay, go into your breakout room. Like, okay. <laughs> are there are there sufficient people uh, in, in the social work system in New York to meet the needs of the young people? Um, presently. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no I, I hear of a lot of burnout and things like that. So I just wonder whether you've seen that in your um, in your area, or perhaps. Maybe it just occurs when uh, social workers deal with adults and not necessarily the younger people. Um, I think I think burnout is real uh, across the board um, for mm-hmm. different reasons. In in my humble opinion, I think it's due to not taking enough time for self. So we hear a lot about self care, but that you have to be intentional about the self-care. Um, that's not always an easy thing to do. So um, if, if your mindset is, I'm of service to others, then you're, you keep pushing yourself to, to, to keep doing that. So that's for the case planners, that's for their supervisors, that's even for the foster parents. I mean, we have foster parents who've been caring for other people's children for decades upon decades. And, you know, like, maybe you might want to take a break, you know, but they're like, oh, well, I don't have anyone in my home. Someone else can come. And it's, that can be a bit much because you're coming with the stuff from before, a new child, their stuff, and what comes with them and their family. So um, mm-hmm. the self-care and the, the vicarious trauma that comes from that is, it, it's a lot. Um, in regards to if there's sufficient staff, honestly, I think I would say yes. Um, the issue has been, in my opinion, the, the perception of the profession by others, not within the profession. Mm -hmm. So you hear a lot about, um, teachers are great and they are great. And their teacher unions strongly advocate for them and resources for them and pay for them. You don't hear the same argument as much for social workers. You look at social workers as you're do-gooders, you're in it for others, so you're not looking for compensation. And my professor said that probably just about every class I've ever (laughs) went to undergrad and in grad school. Um, So you know you're not in it for the money, but that is a realistic part of it as well. So based upon, and I'm talking about, of course, New York City, but based upon your census within your organization, the other types of programs that your organization has to offer and your um, fundraising efforts, your organization may have, you know, your operating budget looks different than um, everyone else's. And so you might have 
agency A, who's able to hire 10 case planners, and let's say they pay them at $60,000 a year, and then you have another agency who wants to hire staff, but they may be able to only pay $30,000 a year. So it's not that people aren't looking or applying, it's the pay is inequitable, and so that causes, poses a challenge um, from the contract agencies, which I work within, and then the cities. The city also has caseworkers, so they're, of course, able to offer more pay in comparison to the smaller agencies, so there's that competition within that area as well. Mm. Wow. I am learning something. Well... <laughs> yeah, there's so much to learn, but I, um, I'm looking at the time and I know that we only have you for a few more minutes. So, um, I wanted to ask the question that we are asking all of our guests, um, during this initial, like, I guess, inaugural season <laughs> of our podcast. Um, but if you think back to your 15 year old self, and Whoa. maybe this is really pertinent for you, given that you work with youth every day, but if you look back at your 15 year old self, what would you tell her? Ooh. Um, Come on, Denise, it's not so long. <laughs> <laughs> what would I tell myself? Um, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to try something new. Um, you know, someone, someone has your back. You know, I, I think... Um, there may have been instances where, you know, I wasn't too sure about certain things and, and had I ventured out a little bit more than whether I would have been in this profession or not, it, it doesn't really matter, but I would have had a little bit more, um, life experiences, I guess I should say, um, had I had a little bit more courage at that time and, um, what else, um, The life stuff, you know, the life stuff about um, financial responsibility and um, I think those would probably be, yeah, probably just financial responsibility. That that would be one of the other things, whether it's your parents or other um, adult mentor people in, in my life at that time, just to take more heed to that at a younger age. Um, which in turn is something that, you know, I try to encourage our young people to do, but, you know, at that age, it's, it's a challenge for them. I mean, they don't have consistent income and they're dealing with various other issues at the same time. So um, that's an uphill battle, but one that I keep trying to challenge them to, to, to address. Mm -hmm. I try to look at my young people as I would look at, a 15-year-old cousin. And that's what I often tell them. I said, my expectations of you are not you as a child in foster care. My expectations of you, you as a 15-year-old who needs to be able to do things for themselves at some point in your life. So if you think that um, my requests are unrealistic, I want the best for you, you know, and, and I'm going to challenge you on that. It's okay if you push back. But I'm, I'm going. To, I want you to see that that you can do this. So I, I con constantly push them, and I even at times push the case planning staff because sometimes they enable some of the behaviors 
um, in instances where where the child is completely capable. Um, so sometimes I challenge all of the powers around them as well. Like, okay, you got to let them, you got to let them fall a little bit. You can't just coddle them. At some point, we're not going to be here and we have to test out what we're doing. And that's, I know this wasn't the question. But <laughs> that's, 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 that's been, um, that's been one of the biggest challenges within the field is we try to, you know, foster certain skills within them and, and, and teach them certain things. And we don't allow them to room to test it out. We just think that they're going to fail. So we just want to do it for them. I'm like, there's no learning in the doing for them because you're not always going to be there. I'm not always going to be there. So they have to be able to see like, okay, I did it or I didn't do it. How come I wasn't able to do it? How can I do it differently next time? Or who can I ask if I don't know? But if you keep doing it, they're not ever going to learn that part of the skill. And, and that's a failure in my opinion. That's, we fail them. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. I think you really, it's not as if you really enjoy what you do and you're, you're just certain dedicated to passing on a lot of your knowledge and experience to your young charges. Well, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's funny because I don't, honestly, I don't look at it that way and I don't think about it that way. Um, I think there's a young lady, she's, I think she's in grad school now and I don't, you know, she was in the child welfare system and she's moved on. Um, however, she's in touch with one of my colleagues and my colleague said to me recently within maybe the past three weeks and she was like, Oh, the young lady wanted me to tell you, thank you. And I'm like, "Hmm?" like, that's just random. So for her instance, um, she she started out college undergrad while she was um, still with us, and there was a period where people were saying to her that she was not going to be able to finish, and they were saying the the services that the agency traditionally provided were no longer going to be available to her, and we had a meeting, and when she shared that, and I looked at her and I'm like, are you kidding me? And I said, you've, you've been in relationship with other people besides this person that is saying that to you. I said, if that person said that to you, you should have went to someone else and asked another question. I said, because you don't allow someone to tell you what you cannot do. If this is what you want to do, then how, how can I get this to happen? Okay, you said no. Is there any other way? Ask a question. You know, So I kind of challenged her at that moment and she took that and ran with it and now she's in grad school with a full-time job um and she she's like had you not pushed me she's like I would have just stopped going you know and which is amazing (laughs) so I don't think about it in the moment you're just thinking like come on you say you want to finish college just go ahead what's stopping you don't don't let anyone tell you you can't like there are a lot for, for New York City. I know a lot of other states don't function the same way as New York City because the dynamics are not the same. But New York City has so many programs for young people in, in foster care. So many, like they can actually leave college with a lot of money saved up. That's how many programs are available to them. And they get textbooks and they get a computer and they get metric cards for transportation. So, I mean, they, they can come out of college with their degree, little money in their pocket, connections, relationships, internships, all of these other full experiences. And I'm like, you don't let somebody tell you that you can't have that because we're not going to be here. You still have to live a successful life. 
so that that was really really nice to hear but that that's not really what you think about when you do what you do right Right. (laughs) well I think that's a great um, note to end on that you know anything is possible and that you really you speak a lot of encouragement into young people's lives um, not only during this really uncertain time of a pandemic and helping them navigate a very strange time but just helping young people who don't have the support learn how to do life and yeah. I think that's that's incredibly valuable yes, um, very much so. so just in the interest of protecting your time I'm going to stop us here but I'm so <laughs> glad that you came on as a guest yes thank you thank you I had a good time and and this was this was good I hope someone you know can you know get something from our conversation and maybe pique their interest in some aspect of the field it can be just being a mentor becoming a professional within the field even opening their home to someone someone else you know there's so many ways that you can be of support to a young adult in foster care yes yes so so good thank Thank you thank you thank you thank you I think my favorite part of that entire interview was when Denise talked about telling the young woman in the foster care system that um, no one should ever tell her what she can and cannot do. I think that speaks volumes uh, to the kind of work that social workers do in our communities, uh, in the lives of individuals in terms of helping them get from a situation that is quite challenging to one where they are doing what they want to do and living in a new way, a way that is um, healthier and enables them to reach their dreams. Uh, I think that also speaks volumes for those of us who haven't uh, had to endure that kind of hardship that really the sky's the limit. So take that strengths-based approach and um, take it into your life to how you speak to yourself, how you speak to your children if you have them, and how you speak to those around you to offer caring and support. So a big, big thank you to Miss Denise Rogers for taking time out of her day to speak with us. We'll see you next time. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate and subscribe to At The Same Time on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss a single episode. We'd love for you to connect with us online. Our website is sametimepod.fireside.fm. You can also follow us on Twitter, at sametimepod. Music by purpleplanet.com. Copyright 2020 by Nikel Rogers Wood, PhD, and Elsa Rogers, PhD.